You have joined us in the middle of a series that we're doing called My Life Changed When. And in this series, we've been talking about how God uses um, certain things in our lives to change us, to help us grow, to help us understand who he is. And so we've been looking at kind of different things each week that God uses, sometimes really hard things, sometimes things that are joyful, uh, that are wonderful, like uh, mountaintop moments and, and valley moments. And so we've been, uh, we've been talking about our stories a lot and the power of our story. And we said, you know, your story and my story is not just our story, but it's God's story working inside of us. And so we said, man, we should share our stories. Like, let's not keep it to ourselves because people can relate to your story. People can relate to my story. And so by sharing our stories with other people, God can use those in their lives the way that he's used things in our life. And so we've been saying we um, would like to, to challenge challenge you each week to um, think of a life change moment in your own life and, uh, and then get a little camera or your webcam or video camera, whatever you want to use, phone, and record yourself. 90 seconds or less, just sharing about how God used this experience in your life to change you and to grow you. And we said, there's something about going public with our faith. You know, there's something about saying, I am a follower of Jesus and I want everybody to know about it, right? So we said, why don't you post it online? Like, post it to your favorite social media site and then just see what happens. See how God uses your story and other people's lives. So that's what we've been doing the last few weeks. Um, The first week we talked about stories. Last week we talked about, um, I'm sorry, two weeks ago we talked about conflict. And how God can use conflict to really change us and grow us. Last week we talked about um, when our secret comes out. And how dangerous secrets can be for us as followers of Jesus. And how, how uh, binding they can be for us. Insla- imprisoning us, right? And how good it feels to be liberated from those secrets. And how God can use um, those moments when we release our secrets. When we choose to let go of our secrets. And let other people in. How God can use that for his glory. So that's what we talked about about last week. And this week, we continue on in the series. I was doing some... um some research, I guess, this week. It was a little bit morbid, morbid. but I was looking at uh, some near-death experiences that people had, and uh, it's really fascinating how, uh, like, what happens when people have these experiences where they're sort of faced with their own mortality. So I, I read a story about a guy who had a perforated stomach, and he almost died. And another lady who was struck by lightning, and she survived. Um, another guy who was in a bad car car accident. His car is like tumbling over and over and over again. And uh, and then one that was probably like my greatest fear, this lady was kayaking and she got flipped over. She capsized in her kayak but got stuck in it and was like drowning, was struggling for her life. And it's crazy. Like these stories are crazy. And it's crazy the things that happened, like that we experience in these near-death situations. Like how many people say, I just felt like I went somewhere. Like my spirit went somewhere. So I read about uh, some people that felt like God had like grabbed their spirit and taken them up to heaven and they had a chance to talk with God or a chance to talk with Jesus. I read about other people who felt like something else had taken their spirit down to hell and literally I read some stories about people that felt like they had spoke, they like been in hell and spoken with demons. Crazy. I read other stories about people that were uh, uh, like 
taken from their body and they could look down on the exam table and see their physical body. Like crazy stuff. It's weird stuff. And who knows like how much of that is weird brain stuff, like biological stuff that your brain does when you're injured or whatever. And who knows how much of that is something else. I don't know. But one of the things that many of these people talked about is how when they're facing, when they're in these near-death situations uh, and they're faced with their own mortality, how things begin to slow down. Like everything, particularly this guy who was driving his car and got in this bad accident, he said it felt like it was going super slow as he's like flipping over in his car. But your mind is like working really, really fast, like this weird lucidity that you feel. And it's interesting like what people are thinking about in these near-death experiences. Like nobody's thinking, I wonder if I recorded last night's episode of The Bachelor, right? Like that's not what they're thinking in those times. No one's thinking, um, I wonder like if LeBron's going to wear his headband this week or not for the game because it's crazy. He averages 3.3 more points. No one's thinking that sort of stuff, right? Like what you're thinking is about things that are most important. Like when you're facing your mortality, when you're facing these near-death experiences, you think about the things that are the most important to you. And I don't think I've had, I was thinking about this, this way, I don't think I've had like a near-death experience or anything like that. One time I almost drowned, I was um, whitewater rafting, and the guide who was with us said, these are like light rapids, these are swimming rapids, they called them. He said, you, could, you have a life jacket on. He said, you could just jump out and you could swim through. Does anybody want to do it? And I was like, sure, that sounds great. So I jumped out. And like the very first part of the rapid, I wasn't ready for it. And I took a breath right as I went down like underwater. And so the, the rest of the time, I could not breathe. And I'm like flailing around. It's crazy. But I don't think I've ever had like a near-death experience. But now, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting a little bit older. I got some gray in my beard. I'm almost 40 years old. And I start thinking about my, my mortality a little bit. And I've caught myself thinking, like, what would happen if I wasn't around? Like, what would happen if I died? And the thing that I think about most in those times are people, right? Like, I, I, I think about my relationships. I think about my wife, Marsha. I think about my kids, Luke and Natalie. I think about my friends. I think about many of you, right? That's the important thing for me when I think about my life could be ending. You ever think about how much stuff we focus on in life that's really not important at all? Like, when you think, in the end, what's really important and what's not, how much of our time we spend on things that are urgent but unimportant, like way too much time, way too much time. And the important things then get lost among the urgent things. And sometimes when your life flashes before your eyes or you can see the end in sight, what's most important usually becomes pretty clear. Well, there's this guy in the Bible who um, had not just one, but multiple near-death experiences. Actually, it's crazy, the stuff that he went through. He was uh, imprisoned multiple times by people who wanted to kill him. Five times, I think it's five, five times he received the 39 lashes, like beat 39 times, harshly. Five different times he received that. One time he was stoned, like we talked about this last week, like pelted with stones, left for dead, and somehow he made it out. He was alive and crawled away and recovered from it. He was beaten with rods three times. He was shipwrecked three times. One night he spent an entire day, an entire night in open sea. 
like lots of near-death experiences. And toward the end of this guy's life, knowing he was in jail, knowing that his end was going to come soon, we have some of his last thoughts that were written down for us. And we get to see from him what he feels like are the things that are most important. And it's fascinating. And this guy's name is Paul, the Apostle Paul. So I want you to open your Bibles. I want to look at this together. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, there is a table full of them back there. Uh, we would love for you to take one of those as your own. In the church Bibles there, it's page 965. It's toward the end of the New Testament. And as you're flipping there, I want to give you a little bit of context in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, again, this is the last letter that Paul wrote. Okay, The very last letter that Paul wrote. And he wrote it imprisoned. Uh, in Rome. So the guy who was the emperor of Rome at that time was a guy named Nero. And Nero was a man who hated Christians. He was the ruler of the entire Roman Empire and he hated Christians. And so he killed many of them. And Nero had Paul imprisoned and Paul knew that his end was in sight. He knew that um, Nero was going to put an end to him. And so he writes us from a dark, dingy prison cell. And he writes to Tim Timothy, this guy named Timothy, which we'll talk about here in a second, to convey his last thoughts and sign up, kind, of, kind of his challenges to Timothy in the face of uh, impending execution. So he knows it could happen at any point. And so this letter that we have written literally could have been written uh, days or hours before Paul was executed. Okay, so it's some of his last words. So you're in chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's look at verse 9. This is what it says. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. There's a funny little set of verses, isn't it? You probably thought, is he reading the wrong verses? Like, is he really going to do a sermon on a bunch of different guys' names, right? There's a funny little set of verses because these are the kind of verses that many times we skip in the Bible, right? Like when we get to this part, we go, I don't know any of these dudes. I don't know these places. I don't understand the history that this is all wrapped up with, right? Like who's Tychicus? And who's Carpus? And who's their, who's their French friend, Crescence? I don't know if that's how you say it or not. That's the thing with Bible names and places. If you say it confidently, no one really knows how it's pronounced anyway. So if you say it confidently, everybody just thinks it's right. Crescence. And who's this dude, Alexander? Right? Like, we don't know. He seems like a tool, but I don't have any idea what he actually did. So these aren't verses, like these are kind of strange verses, right? Like these aren't verses that, that you generally memorize and, and like pull out when you're struggling, right? Like, man, I had a bad day today. Felt like my life was falling apart. But then I remembered how I had memorized 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas, my scrolls especially. Like no one remembers that and goes, ah, that's like sweet to my soul, right? That's not these verses. But you know what's really interesting to me? That these are all guys. So we got a whole bunch of different names here, right? Like these are all guys that Paul really, really invested in. 
And so as he's facing the end of his life, what he's doing is he's thinking about his relationships. He's thinking about these men that he loves and he spent a lot of time with. He's gone through battles with, right? He's gone through imprisonment with, suffering, persecution. He's thinking about these guys who he's built into and who he loves. I don't remember uh, where I read it, but um, I read that Paul was closely associated with somewhere um, around, at least, I'm sorry, at least 40 different capable workers in the early church. 40 different men who would go on to lead in significant ways in the early church. And these are guys that Paul invested in in significant ways. Many of them would actually go on and lead churches, like the church in Ephesus or the church in Thessalonica. And there's one guy, like as we read this list of different guys' names, there's one guy in here who isn't mentioned, but is probably the one who Paul invested in most significantly of all. And it's the guy that he wrote the letter to. It's the guy that he wrote the last letter that he would write before he was killed for his faith. And that man's name, of course, is Timothy. Timothy's a guy who would have said without a doubt that his life changed because Paul invested in him. And so there are three ways that I just want to highlight for the rest of our time here. I just want to highlight three ways that Paul invested in Timothy that were life-changing to Timothy. And then I want to spend the rest of our time applying it to us. Like, what does it look like for us to live this out too? So the first thing that Paul does, um, by the way, you, on the back of your program, you got a little place for notes. If you're a note taker, that'd be a good um, place to write this. The first thing that Paul does is he takes an interest in Timothy and he invited Timothy in to a friendship. That's the first thing that Paul does. Acts 16 is when we first meet Timothy in the Bible. And it says that Paul goes to this town called Lystra, this small town called Lystra. And while he's there, he meets this teenager. So Timothy is somewhere in his late teens at the time, 15 to 18 years old, something like that, most theologians think. And for some reason, we don't know all the details here. The scriptures aren't this specific. But for some reason, Timothy sticks out to Paul. Like there's something about Timothy that catches Paul's eye. In the text, it says that uh, the people spoke very highly of Timothy there in Lystra. And it says that Timothy's mom and grandma are very strong Christians. So Timothy's mom was a Jew. She was a Jewish Christian. Timothy's dad was a Greek. And it's, it sounds like from the text, again, it's not real specific, but it sounds like from the text that Timothy's dad was probably not a Christian and could very well have been absent from his life. That's what it sounds like when you read the text, that Timothy's dad is not really around. And many of you probably have that same sort of situation. You know, maybe your life is more like Timothy's life, like dad wasn't around, dad wasn't a part of it, or at least dad wasn't a a spiritual leader in your life. Like your life wasn't growing up with, you know, mom and dad driving the minivan with the three kids in the back going to church. That wasn't you. Well, that wasn't Timothy either. But Paul sees something in Timothy. And you know what he does? He takes the initiative, he steps out, he takes the initiative, and he takes an interest in him, and he invites Timothy into a friendship. He invites Timothy into a relationship with him. And you know what ends up happening? Timothy becomes Paul's closest companion of all. 
Timothy is the closest friend that Paul has. And the rest of Paul's life, Timothy is a part of it. And Timothy eventually goes on to become a very important leader in the church. He leads the church of Ephesus. So we have the the book of Ephesians, right? Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus. Timothy was the leader of the church in Ephesus. All because Paul steps out, Paul takes initiative, and he takes an interest in him, and he invites him into a friendship. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had someone kind of invite you in in your life? Like, have you ever had somebody who looks at you and says, I see something in this person. Maybe it's something that you don't even see yet. But they invite you in. They say, I want you to, I want to get to know you. And I want you to get to know me. You ever had that? Like, how does that make you feel? Like, think about the feelings when somebody reaches out to you. They take an interest in you. They reach out to you and they say, why don't you come hang out with me for a little bit? That's what Paul did for Timothy. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. Once he takes an interest in Timothy and he invites him to be part of his life, he begins to pour into Timothy, to pour out his life onto Timothy, everything that he knows, everything that he does. In 2 Timothy 3, in verse 10, it says, you know, however... Uh, you, I'm sorry, you, however, know all about my teaching. You, Timothy, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all, from all of them. Notice, Timothy here, he doesn't only know about Paul's teaching. Right? Like he's not just like sitting listening to Paul's formal teaching. That's not what it's about. He knew his way of life. Right? He knew his purpose. He knew his faith, his love, his patience, his endurance, his persecutions, his sufferings, all of those things. How did he know those things? Like how would you know those things about somebody else? Well, he knew them because Paul granted him access into his life. Paul let him in, you know. Timothy didn't just know who Paul was publicly, but he knew who Paul was personally. He saw what Paul did for fun. He saw how he spent his time. He saw his habits. He saw, he saw how he spent his free time when he wasn't working, right? He invited him in. And he didn't just know his theology. He didn't just know what he believed. He didn't just know what his doctrine was. But he also knew his character. He knew his way of life. Now, this is dangerous, right? Like, this is a dangerous thing. When, like, all access passes reveal what's behind the scenes, right? They do. No secrets. It's dangerous when you let somebody in. You say, you can come behind the curtain because you can't have secrets. When you have secrets, you don't want to let people in. We talked about this last week, right? You don't want to let people in. You don't want people to discover you, to discover what you're doing. Well, Paul didn't have secrets. And so Paul opens up his life. He gives Timothy an all-access pass to his life. And he says, come be with me. Let me just pour out my life on you. Let me give my life away to you. Let me ask you this. Does anybody have access to your life? Like, think beyond your family. It's expected that your family has access to you. But does anybody beyond your family have access to your life? Like, if they do, what are they learning? You know? Is it, is it something of value to them? Because I guarantee your life is making an impression on them. The question is, what kind of an impression are you making? Paul opened up his life to Timothy. He said, come be with me. He invites him to be his friend, right? Takes an interest in him. And he says, come be with me. And let me just pour out what I know on you. 
I want you to see how I live. I want you to see what I do. But he doesn't stop there. He takes an interest in him. He invites him in. He pours out his life on them. But then he goes on. He builds Timothy up. And he speaks into his life. And he coaches him. That's what Paul does to him. He sees something in Timothy, right? He sees something in him. And he speaks a vision into Timothy's life that if I had to bet, and I don't know this for sure, but if I had to bet, if I was a betting man, I would guess he's speaking a vision into Timothy's life that Timothy didn't yet see. And it's really interesting when you read, Timothy's all over the place in the New Testament. Like you read the different letters in the New Testament, you see Timothy all over the place. When you kind of piece all that stuff together and all these things that he's mentioned in, you get a picture of a guy who's a little bit timid. He's a a little bit fearful. He tends to be a worrier. He tends to be a people pleaser. And he seems to be a reluctant leader. That's the picture of Timothy, at least initially. But Paul sees something more than that. Timothy. I love this. Paul looks at his life and he sees something deeper. He sees Timothy's potential. He doesn't just see a reluctant leader. He looks at Timothy and he has a vision for him. And he sees a pillar of the church. That's what Paul sees in Timothy. And then he challenges him. He opens up his life to him. And he challenges him to become the man who God has made him to be. In chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, Paul says this. He says, For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For the spirit God gave us uh, does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What's Paul doing here? He's coaching Timothy, right? Like he's like a really good coach to him. He's speaking courage into his life. You can do this, Timothy. God didn't give you a spirit of timidity. He gave you a spirit of power, of courage, of self-discipline, right? He's like a good coach. He's speaking into his life. And as a result of Paul's investment in Timothy, Timothy goes on to do amazing things. You know, Timothy co-wrote 10 letters in the New Testament with Paul. When Paul writes, you know, the letters of Galatians and 1st and, uh, uh, and 2nd Corinthians, those are from Paul and Timothy. Timothy co-writes those with him. And then Paul writes two different letters to Timothy, right? One we're looking at, 2nd Timothy and also 1st Timothy. So literally over a third of the New Testament is either written by, co-authored, or written to Timothy. It's crazy. And Paul would send Timothy on like really important missions. That's what he would do. You have a problem in one of these churches, so these churches are being established in these towns like Ephesus and Thessalonica and Colossians and all of these different places. When there's problems, Paul sends Timothy. So when the Thessalonians needed some encouragement, you know what Paul did? Timothy, go. When the Corinthians were doing crazy Corinthian stuff, you know what he did? Timothy, head on over there. When, the, when Ephesus needed new leaders and it needed new leadership there and somebody had to raise up leaders, you know what he did? Timothy, I want you to go lead this church. When Paul planted a church in Berea and then he had to leave, you know who he left behind? Silas and Timothy. If you were on the fringe of the Christian movement, you would have heard of Paul. Paul is very well known. Paul is everywhere, right? But if you were part of, if you were connected to the Christian movement, you would have seen Timothy everywhere. Timothy's everywhere. He's like, where's Waldo? You know where's Waldo? Like, Waldo's in every picture. You just got to look around and find him. That's Timothy. Timothy was everywhere. He was in the thick of everything. And Paul loved him. 
Paul built into him and he loved him. He said this, I don't think we have a slide for this, but he said this in Philippians 2. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So he's writing to the Philippians. I hope to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. He says, I have no one else like him. I have no one else like Timothy who showed genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. Paul loved Timothy. He invited him in, right? He poured out his life on him. He gave him an all-access pass to his life. And then he built him up and he spoke vision and courage into his life. He coached him. That's what he did for Timothy. And what it did was absolutely change Timothy's life. So, so what? <laughs> like, why, why are we talking about this 2,000 years ago? What does this mean for us? Well, I think we're talking about this because you've probably had, I'll bet many of you have had somebody in your life kind of like a Paul who's invested in you, who's invited you in and said, hey, I want you to, I, want, I see something in you. I want you to be a part of my life and poured out their life on you and encouraged you along the way. Maybe, maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was uh, a pastor. Maybe it was a boss or some other sort of leader in your life or a friend. This is, this is all, for me, real personal. And it's real fresh because for most of my life, um, for most of my life, I never felt like I had a mentor. Now, let me be clear. My parents are awesome. They're great people. They built into me. My older siblings are awesome. I love them. They built into me. But I never had somebody like outside my family who took an interest in me, like a deep interest in me and believed in me. Like, like every mom thinks their kid's a rock star, right? Like that just kind of goes with the territory, right? I didn't feel like I had somebody from outside my life who looked at me and said, man, that he's got something. I had people that you know, gave me chances. I had people who were nice to me. I had people who cared about my growth, my success. But I don't think I ever had somebody that looked at me and said, I see something in you. I see a potential in you. I said, why don't you, why don't you come with me and let me just kind of build into your life. Until, I don't think I ever had that, until a few years ago when I met Pastor Dan Gregory at the Norton campus. Dan, some of you guys know Dan well. Um, I can say that I met Dan at a pretty tough time in my life, to be honest with you. And all, all the details aren't all that important. But I can say it this way. I was a lot like Timothy when I met him. You know, I was a little bit unsure of myself, a little, little bit fearful. You know, I needed somebody who believed in me, somebody who looked at me and said, I see something in you. And I want to help you become the man that God has designed you to be. And that's what Pastor Dan did for me. He took a risk on me. When I met him, I was looking for a job. And he took a risk on me. He said, why don't, you, why don't you come on my staff? And he hired me. And then when I came on staff, he entrusted me with, uh, with this, with Norton's flock. And he said, um, why don't you preach? Why don't, why don't you share with them what God's been teaching you? And then that led to me being entrusted with, uh, at times, the flock at Bath, right? Because Dan believed in me. And he encouraged me when I needed encouraged, you know? When I was, because we all get discouraged, right? Like, let's be honest. No one is like beyond that. We all have those times. He encouraged me when I needed it. And he affirmed me when I needed affirmed. It was amazing, actually. 
how, how he knew what I needed when I needed it. And he had the courage to speak that into my life. He saw gifts in me and he fanned them into flame like Paul did here with Timothy. He corrected me in my thinking at times when I needed corrected, which I did at times, which is not always fun, right? I guess it's not always fun and easy when you get corrected. Everybody who's a parent knows that. It was a kid. It's not always fun and easy, but he did that with me. He had the courage to do that with me. He allowed me into his life, and I got to see who he was, and I got to see his heart. I got to see him as a worshiper, of Jesus. I got to see him as a father. I got to see him as a pastor and how he cared for the flock as a leader. I got to see his integrity and his faith and his respect, the way he cared for people and chased after people and loved people. I even got to see him on his bad days. Even Pastor Dan had bad days, right? Like we all do. And he let me in and he allowed me at times to be part of the challenges that he was facing. I can, I can honestly say to you, that uh, the Barberton campus, I don't think the Barberton campus would be here today. I certainly would not be leading it if it wasn't for Pastor Dan Gregory at the Norton campus believing in me and investing in me in my life. It's powerful. And I'm not the only one who needs that. Like, we all need that, right? I have, a, I have a video that I want to show you. It's a short video, a three-minute video of another person that's one of us, one of a, a folks at the Barberton campus who had a similar experience of how his life changed when someone invested in him. So I want you to check out this video. Hi, uh, my name is Babak Uranmanesh. Uh, my life changed when someone invested in me. I uh, grew up uh, as a devout uh, Muslim in Iran. Um, I started fasting and praying since I was nine years old. And uh, through all the time, uh, the whole time that I was there, uh, my worship and prayer was primarily based on fear and guilt. Um, I really didn't have a personal relationship with God. Um, uh, then in 2000, um, I moved to U.S. for school. And in 2002, um, through a friend, I was um, uh, introduced to a fellowship, an international fellowship, um, in downtown Baltimore. And the first time that I went there, I, I met my mentor. Uh, he, his name is Peter. He is a retired surgeon who, um, when he saw that I was interested um, uh, about Christianity, he really invested in me. Uh, I had really no idea what Christianity is all about. I didn't know what the Bible is or who really Christ was. Um, Peter, uh, you know, started meeting with me on a regular basis once a week. Poor guy would drive from Pennsylvania an hour and a half to Baltimore to meet with me to answer all the questions. I had a lot of questions. I, I you know, I had a lot of um, misunderstanding, a lot of doubts about Christianity that he answered every single question and, and, and he brought me resources, books, and I remember the first time he gave me a Bible as I started reading the New Testament it was amazing the joy and peace that I got from reading it I never ever had felt the way I felt after reading the Bible during all those years that I was a Muslim reading the Quran and it was just really amazing that personal relationship that I got to experience and, you know, and, and realizing that what a sinner I am and, and how much God loved me that he was willing to send his own son God himself 
uh, in place of my sins. And because of that, now I have a new identity in Christ. And, and when I look back, you know, just the way, um, it's just amazing how God has orchestrated all these events, just the way He brought me out of Iran while being such a devout Muslim, the way he uh, took me to that fellowship, the way he put Peter in my life, and then the time and the, the, the effort that he invested in me, uh, because of all that, uh, I am where I am today in my faith, and I praise God for that, because he was in control the whole time, and now... Um, my passion, my purpose in life is to share Christ with other people, to tell them how much God's loved them, how much He wants to have a personal relationship with them, and ultimately it's all for God's glory. And what a privilege it is to be part of God's family, and what a blessing it is. It's the power of a Paul, right? It's the power of, of somebody who takes the initiative and steps out and sacrifices for the good of somebody else. And that's not easy, right? That's a lot of work. You talk about driving an hour and a half one way to go mentor him and to be a part of his life. It's not easy. See, guys, there, there are people that God has... I believe this with all my heart. There are people that God has in your life right now that he desires you to invest in. I, I believe that. In each of our lives right now, there are people that God has that he desires you and me to invest in. You may be thinking, like, what do I have to offer? A lot. A lot. Don't think that way. You have a lot to offer. When you step out and you take an interest in somebody else's life, it can be absolutely life-changing for them. And everybody needs it. Kids need this. Teenagers need this. Young adults need this. Uh, young marrieds need this. Young families need this. Singles of all ages need this. Empty nesters need this. Retirees need this. Every single one of us needs somebody that, that we can look at and we go, man, that person believes in me. They blow wind in my sails. And guys, can I tell you something that you already know? Barberton is no exception to people needing being mentored, being built into. There are people all around us in this community that have never been taught. No one's taken an interest in them. There are little boys running all around that have no dad in their life. They have nobody teaching them what it means to be a man. There's little girls running around all over the place that mom has never taught them how to be an honorable woman. Never. And they're starving for attention. And they will look for that, that attention anywhere they can find it, Right? And that can lead to some rotten stuff. Or it could lead to us, right? It could lead to us stepping out and going, I see something in you. I, I want to invite you in. I, I want you to be part of my life. If we're looking for it, if we're ready for it, if we're praying for it, God can do that for us. God will do that. I, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Maybe, maybe, what if the greatest impact that you will make in this world is not something that you do. This is counterintuitive. It's not something you do, but someone you invest in. We're doers. We're Americans, right? What if the greatest impact you can make in this world is not something that you do, but it's someone that you invest in? You know, we talk about leaving a legacy a lot of times, right? Like, I want to leave a legacy. What do you mean by that? Like, what kind of legacy do we want to leave? Man, that guy was rich. He had a lot of money. Well, that's a legacy that some people are chasing after. 
Man, that guy was an incredible businessman. I mean, he could take any business from the red and make it black. Like, he was incredible. He could fix any business. Well, that's a legacy that some people are chasing. That person, that lady was really nice. Every time, I, I didn't see her very often, but when I did, she was really nice. It's a legacy many people are chasing. He believed in me. Like he, he took a risk on me. He saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, and he gave his life away for me. And whenever I needed him, he said I could call him. I am where I'm at today because of him. That's the kind of legacy that I want to leave. That's the kind of legacy that I want. And not just for my kids, but for others too, outside of my family too. And, and can I say this? We're almost done. Can I say this too? What, this, is, this is so cool. As I invest in other people, it changes me too. It changes them. Like when I give my life away to somebody else, it changes them. Paul did that for Timothy. Timothy's changed. But you know what? Paul was changed because of that too. Paul said this. Uh, this is a passage I started off with. I'm going to read it differently this time. This is what he said. Right in Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Remember, he's dying. He knows his end is, is in sight. Do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy. For Demas, because he loved the world, he's deserted me. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke's with me. Get Mark, bring him with you because he's helpful to me. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Paul, see, Paul's an old man by now. He's an old man and he's at the end of his life and he knows it. He knows he's going to die. And so he wants three things. He's pretty simple. He wants three, three, three things. He says, I want my cloak. Cold. I want my coat. Remember, he's in a dark and dingy prison. He said, Timothy, bring my cloak. And he says, I want my parchments. You know what parchments were? That's like his Bible. That's what God's word was written on. He said, I want my parchments so that I can re read about and be reminded of what I'm going to get a chance to experience soon. He said, I want, I want my cloak. I want my parchments. And I want my Timothy. I want you, Timothy. I want you to be with me in my last days. Because I remember what we went through. You know? You were with me during all the hard times and all the amazing times. And I know my end's coming. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And the end is near. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He knows it's coming. He says, I want my coat. I want my Bible. I want my Timothy to be with me. My question to you is, who's your Timothy? Who are you investing in? We got all kinds of opportunities. If we're not doing this as a campus, we fail. We fail. And it's not just the staff. It's not just our grace group leaders, our kids ministry people. It's every single one of us. It takes all of us. Who is your Timothy? Who's the person that you're investing in? Tyler talked about student ministries. That is a prime opportunity. Some of you, God is tugging on your hearts right now, and he's saying, I want you to minister to these kids, 6th through 12th grade. I want you to build into them. I'm going to connect you with kids. I want you to build into them. Others of you, children's ministry. Like We have a great kids ministry. 
And we will get more and more kids who don't have anybody who's building into them. And that's an opportunity for you. For some of you, it's in a grace group. You've got somebody in your grace group who's struggling that you can walk alongside because you've been there before. Others of you, it might be a neighbor. Others of you, it might be a friend. Who's your Timothy? Or maybe, maybe where you sit right now, you need a Paul in your life. You, you hear me talking about how Dan invested in me. You hear my back talking about how his mentor invested in him. You go, I've never had that. I'm struggling. I'm hurting right now. Maybe you need a Paul in your life. I challenge you, go find one. Like, take the initiative. Go to somebody and say, I respect you. I respect the way that you live your life. And I would love it if you would just invest in me. Like, if we could just have some time together. Don't get crazy. Like, don't get stupid. I mean, with respect. Don't get stupid and say, you know, can we meet every day for the next 36 years? Don't do that. Right? Like, once a week, once every two weeks, will you commit? Will you be a part of my life? And guys, can I say this? By the way, like, investing in somebody is exactly what God has done inside of us. Like, this is exactly what Jesus did. He invites us in to a relationship, right? He has an interest. He takes the initiative and has an interest in us. He pours out his life on us. He builds into us. He gives us his spirit. He gives us spiritual gifts that we could use to follow him in this life. This is exactly what God has done for us. And it's what he challenges us to do with other people. So I've laid down a challenge tonight. Who's your Timothy? Who's the person that you're investing in? Don't just stop with your family. We expect that. But who else are you investing in that you're opening up your life, you're giving them an all-access pass and saying, why don't you come be with me? Let me build into you. I don't know everything, but let me just share with you what I know.